Well, I'm excited to dig into our text this morning with you, church family. So if you have your Bibles, grab them and turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Uh, so the, the past few weeks, we've been looking primarily at Jesus' teaching in the latter part of Luke chapter 6. This week, we get back to the narrative, and we see two miracles that Jesus performs, one in Capernaum and one in a town called Nain. And one of the themes of Luke's gospel thus far has been this recognition of Jesus' authority. So, back in chapter 4, Jesus is teaching in Capernaum, and we read that those listening to him were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. A few verses later, Jesus casts out a demon from a man, and those present respond in amazement, asking, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. In chapter 5, we see how Jesus' authority is not limited to teaching or acts of power, but also to the greatest need of the human condition, and that is the need for forgiveness of sin. You may remember the story uh, Jesus is confronted with a man who has been lowered into the room in front of him. Uh, the man is paralyzed. And, and Jesus uh, says to the Pharisees, those teachers of the law who are watching, he says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has, what? Has authority on earth to forgive sins he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose. Church, Luke has not hidden from us the amazing authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, we come once again to see how Jesus' very words contain authority. Life-giving, life-changing authority. So please follow along in your Bibles as I read for us from Luke chapter 7 and the first 17 verses. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus... He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. 
As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Church family, this is an amazing, remarkable text, just like all the texts we look at in the inspired word of God. But with our time this morning, two things for us to see. We're going to see authority and faith, authority and faith, and second, authority and compassion, authority and compassion. The first point will be significantly longer than the second, just giving you a heads up. So first, dear church, authority and faith. Look with me at verse 1. Luke writes, After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. So Capernaum is a town we become familiar with in Luke's gospel. It's located on the Sea of Galilee. And so after spending time outside that city teaching, Jesus re-enters Capernaum. And in verses 2 and 3, we see a group of men approach him. We read, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So Israel is under Roman rule at this time. And one of the officers in Capernaum is a centurion, a commander of probably about a hundred soldiers. And we don't know if he's Roman or not. He's definitely serving the Roman Empire. He's definitely not Jewish. He, he is a Gentile. And this centurion, we read, has a servant whom he esteems and values, but the servant is sick. And at this point, it doesn't appear like this will be that kind of sickness you kind of get over. Luke tells us this man is at the point of death. So the centurion hears about Jesus, and he, he sends a delegation of elders, these Jewish leaders in the community, to come and solicit Jesus' help. There in verse 4, we see they arrive and they plead with Jesus earnestly. They give Jesus these, these reasons to take time to visit this man and his servant. They say, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. Uh, Jesus has already visited the synagogue. We saw that in chapter 4. Now he hears who helped build it. See, this, this centurion seems to have an appreciation for Jewish culture and, and faith. We're not sure whether he was actually a believer in the Jewish faith, but he is indeed a friend of sorts to God's people. So in verse 6, Jesus goes with these elders. They start out towards the centurion's home, but then there's a change of plans. Look with me at verse 6. 
Luke writes, When Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. Now, I'm not completely sure whether the centurion has actually changed his mind here or if this has kind of been his approach the whole time. But he asks here, Jesus, not to come into his home. So what's the deal with that? Is he just saying, okay, I'm just going to give up. My servant will die. No, not at all. Uh, In fact, the centurion makes his point clear in the coming words where he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself. Why? For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. So is he just giving up? No, he continues and says, but say the word and let my servant be healed. See, the centurion still wants Jesus' healing power, but he believes Jesus can accomplish that healing from afar. He knows he is unworthy to have Jesus come into his home. But the centurion isn't finished, church. His his friends tell Jesus the rationale for this request. Look at verse 8. So through his friends, the centurion communicates to Jesus and says, For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. See, the centurion draws on his own experience as a man in authority and under authority. And he uses his experience to express then faith. In the power of Christ. He's saying that just like he issues an order and his command is executed by the soldier underneath him, so he knows Jesus can also issue an order and the force of sickness attacking his precious servant will halt, will hear the order, and will obey. J.C. Ryle says he declares his confidence that Jesus is an almighty master and that diseases like obedient servants will at once depart at his orders. It's an astonishing display of faith in the powerful authority of Jesus, especially for someone who isn't even a Jew. That's that's what Jesus says in verse 9. This outsider, this centurion, displays a faith Jesus doesn't even see in his own people yet. Hasn't even seen. So Luke writes in verse 9, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And as the friends leave and head back to the home of the centurion without Jesus, they arrive back and find that the centurion's faith was well-founded. Verse 10, they found the servant well. Jesus' words have been accomplished. The centurion's faith has been justified. In church, it's clear Jesus wants this kind of faith to be an example to those who are following him. That's why he turns and uses this as sort of a teachable moment there in verse 9. Do you see that? Church, I think this same teachable moment is relevant for us today as Loudoun Valley Baptist Church in 2020. So what can we learn about this Gentile centurion's faith? 
two things I think that stick out. And this is something I get from one of the commentators. Two things. First, the centurion is humble. The centurion is humble. And church, it should come as no surprise to us after studying the first six chapters of Luke together that Jesus responds to a man who shows humility. Back in chapter 1, Mary the mother of Jesus, rejoices in God's salvation. And she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. In chapter 4, verse 32, Jesus tells the Pharisees, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Meaning he has come for those who are humble and who know their need of him, not those who are self-sufficient. This has been reiterated in the blessings and the Beatitudes at the beginning of his sermon back in chapter 6, when he said, Blessed are you who are poor, who are hungry, who weep, showing that he has come for those who are humble and needy. And here we see that same characteristic in the heart posture of this centurion. He knows his unworthiness. He is humble in approaching Jesus. It's an amazing distinction there between the elder's statement in verse 4, he is worthy, and the centurion's own admission in verse 6, I am not worthy. See, though he had the esteem of the Jews, though he had a position of authority in Capernaum, this officer of Rome confesses he is not worthy to have Jesus in his home. It reminds me of John the Baptist back in chapter 3 who said of Jesus. Do you remember what he said? And the crowd is wondering if John is the Messiah to come. What does he say about Jesus? He says, the strap of his sandals I am not worthy to untie. This, church, is a crucial component of the centurion's faith. He is humble. He is self-aware. He is needy. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't think himself good enough to merit or deserve Jesus' presence. Instead, he asks in humility for help from afar. Church, a, a typical religious approach to God is one that says, I am worthy. That's how many people perceive religion. Religion is a way to tally enough brownie points to get whoever gods and goddesses to respond favorably and beneficently to us. That is not Christianity, church. And praise God it isn't. Jesus has come and he has come for the unworthy. He has come to make us worthy through his own shed blood. And yet, how often, Christian, how often do we still fall into approaching God like he owes us? Like we're somehow worthy to deserve some sort of good from his hand. Perhaps we would say or think something like, God, look what I've done. Now will you help me? Or, look, I haven't cheated on my husband like that woman did. I think you owe me a husband who actually is devoted to me and loves me the way I want to be loved. Or, 
Look, I, I fasted yesterday to show you how much I think of you, Lord. I, I think you owe me a spiritual high today. One very common outlook is to say, look, I've gone to church since I was a kid. You better be looking out for your boy. Church, the centurion will have none of that kind of attitude. He sees Jesus and he is acutely aware, not of his worthiness, but of his unworthiness. Christian, think and consider, God is not like you and just better. He operates on an entirely different plane. He is God. He is creator. You are created. And so you will never, ever, ever make him indebted to you. And that is good news. You will only ever be indebted to him. Friend, God loves you. But he doesn't owe you that love. He gives it to you freely. Isn't that good news? But it's also news that means you cannot twist his arm to give you what you want. He's too powerful for that. So I wonder how, how you, how I might fall into the trap of thinking God owes us something. I think one way we might be able to get insight into our hearts in this matter is, is to think how we respond when God deprives us of something we want, something we desire. When that happens, how do I respond? How do we respond? How do you respond? Do you respond in grief? In, in, in need, in trust, in desperate help, need for help? Or do you get offended, angry, and you give God the cold shoulder? How might you, how might I live in such a way that seeks to stock up good work so God will pay us back when we need him? Friend, if this is the way you approach God, you are depriving yourself of the joy of a life-giving relationship with your Creator. See, God doesn't owe you. But amazingly, fantastically, incredibly, He has given you everything you ever need. In Christ, He has given you everything, Christian. One of the key verses for the Christian life is Romans 8.31. Where Paul says, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. We will forever be debtors to God's grace in Christ, poured out for us. And because he has united us to his son, we can be assured that he will graciously give us everything we need, both now and forevermore. There is no joy in trying and trying to make God indebted to you. There's only futility in that. But oh, the joy in living in light of our indebtedness to him. I love the verse of that old hymn that I included in our devotional guide for this morning. Beneath the cross of Jesus... The hymn writer Elizabeth Clefane pens these words in one of the verses. Just listen to these words. Upon the cross of Jesus, mine eyes at times can see 
the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess. The wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. See, the amazing truth, Christian, is that in Christ, God has made us worthy of his love. No wonder one author says to be worthy is to realize one's unworthiness. Do you get it? Humility, church, is one of the first steps in true faith. Humility sees Jesus for who he is and sees ourselves for who we are. This centurion is humble. The second thing we see, and much more briefly, the second thing we see about the centurion's faith is he is confident. His faith is evidenced in humility and confidence. He is not confident in himself, but in the authoritative power of Jesus. Do you see how he expresses his belief that Jesus doesn't need to come and sort of conjure up some sort of miracle? He doesn't need to touch the servant in any specific way. He merely needs to say the word and his servant will be healed. The centurion highlights here a, a, a truth we must see in this passage, and that is the very word of God, of, of Christ, is divinely powerful. True, Jesus does at times use tools to heal, like the time he puts clay on the blind man's eyes, but he doesn't need to do that. His word is sufficiently powerful to execute anything he desires. And so the centurion believes that when Jesus speaks, disease will listen. When Jesus speaks, sickness will submit. Such is the authority of Christ. The first thing we see here in Luke 7 is authority and faith. And secondly, and finally, and a little bit more briefly then, we see authority and compassion in the second story. Look with me at verse 11. So at some point after the events we've just seen, Jesus is over 20 miles away from Capernaum in a small village called Nain. He still has a following of, of people, we see, his disciples and a great crowd, Luke writes. And Luke picks up this story as Jesus is about to enter Nain. But as Jesus approaches the gate... He is met with a tragic scene. Verse 12. As Jesus drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. So in those days, generally, a person who had died would be buried on the same day as his death. We see here this man's body covered and placed on a, on a bier, a sort of wooden board, to be carried out of the town and buried but the situation gets worse. Luke continues and says, this deceased man is the only son of his mother. How awful. How awful to lose your only child, your only son to death in this way. But the situation gets worse. Luke says, and she was a widow. See, this woman has just recently now been left completely and utterly 
alone. The scholar Daryl Bach calls her an orphaned parent. Mike McKinley, in his commentary on Luke, says all her hopes and all her security have died with her son. It's an awful scene. And it's the only time we see this story in the Gospels. And Jesus, with all his authority and power, looks at this scene and he feels compassion. And so where he had been the one pursued in verses 1 through 10, now he turns into the pursuer. He doesn't turn in for the first time, but he shows how he is the one now pursuing. And back in verses 1 through 10, the centurion's servant was what? He was at death's door. So while there was hardly any hope left, there was still a little bit of human hope left. But here in verses 11 through 17, death's door has clanged shut. But the authority of Jesus will not be turned away by that shut door. Death will not have the last word. Look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, and it's the first time uh, Luke calls Jesus the Lord in this, in this way. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Now, at first glance, it seems like a really shallow, unfeeling thing to say to a person who has just lost a loved one, right? How careless. How careless, unless, unless you can do something about it. In church, gloriously, Jesus can. His voice created life. His voice can restore it. So he walks up to the bier, being carried by men with the son's lifeless body on top. He touches the bier, which in and of itself is surprising. He would have made himself ceremonially unclean by that action. But the caravan of death stops at his touch. And Jesus turns to the dead body and says, Young man, I say to you, arise. It's that I in that sentence that makes all the difference in the world. See, the same voice that can order disease to depart and it obeys, in the case of, this, of the centurion's servant, that same voice can even rebuke death itself and it will listen. Jesus, the, the giver of life, speaks and death perks up its ears at that voice and listens and obeys. And so does the lifeless body of the young man. Verse 15, And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. These words are, are reminiscent of an account in 1 Kings where the prophet Elijah brings a boy back to life and gives him back to his mother. Luke is purposeful in drawing that connection. We see that even more clearly made uh, clear in verse 16. Uh, fear seizes all who behold this resurrection, and they glorify God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. So they may not be aware of everything going on and, and Jesus' real identity, but they do know his power and authority must come from a prophet of God. He raises the dead like Elijah. He bears the authority of God. In church, 
Dear church family, isn't it wonderful that Jesus, the one with all this authority, chooses here to exercise it in love and compassion, even for the outsider, even for the Gentile centurion, even for the widow, even for me, even for you. See, the compassion of Jesus is only getting started in Luke 7. Jesus has come not just to raise a man from the dead who will in inevitably die years later. No, he has come to put death itself to death. In a few chapters, Jesus will go to the cross, and there he will die the death all sinners deserve, all people deserve, for their rebellion against God. See, you want to talk about worthiness? You want to talk about what you're worthy of? Do I want to see that? Well, then each one of us must look at the cross of Jesus and say, that's what I'm worthy of. That's the punishment I deserve. I'm worthy of that death for my sin. And yet, believe it or not, each one of us who is a Christian looks at that cross and accepts that Jesus took that penalty for us. Each one of us who repents of our sin and trusts Jesus to wipe it away, Jesus to present us faultless before the throne of God, each one of us who does that will be saved, made worthy not of punishment, not of condemnation, not of the judgment of God, but of adoption into his family forever as beloved sons and daughters. Praise God for the gospel. And friend, if you're tuning in and you're not a Christian, what a joy to have you in on this with us. Oh, we hope that when we can join together again as a church in person that you come and we can get to meet you. We would count that an honor. But if you're not a Christian, just we want you to know this is the compassion of Jesus for you. He doesn't just want to make your life better. He wants to give you eternal life. And the good news is he has authority to deliver on that promise. In John chapter 17, John is pre praying to God and his Father, and he says, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Friend, does that include you? Have you been forgiven? Have your sins been washed away? Have you been made perfectly righteous through the cross of Jesus Christ? not, the door is still open. Run to him. Run to him while it is still today. And do not wait for tomorrow. Run to him and be saved. If you have questions about that, that's the most important question you can think about this afternoon. Where do you stand with Jesus? Uh, I know we're not in person, but you can scroll down in the Facebook page and send a message to us. I will get that message in our Facebook inbox. You can email me at jacob at loudonvalley.org. We would love to talk with you more about the life we can have in Christ. And Christian, dear Christian, it is impossible to live a life of faith in God and not feel at times like he is far off and distant. If that's you this morning, look at Jesus in Luke 7. Look at Jesus, your infinitely compassionate and incredibly powerful Savior, the one who has all authority, and see how his compassion towards you is not just wishing you well, not just saying, don't weep, be happy. No, 
His compassion towards you exercises power. It's effective. It saves. It fixes. It redeems. His word of salvation towards you accomplishes your salvation. His authority is exercised towards you in compassion for your eternal redemption. That's what his word does. You can rest in the authority of your king. J.C. Ryle again, and we'll finish with this. He has written, The word of Christ is a sure foundation. He that leans upon it shall never be confounded. Believers shall all be found pardoned, justified, and glorified at the last day. Jesus says so, and therefore it shall be done. Let's pray. Lord, who am I to consider these truths with my church family this morning? They are too wonderful. But you have given us the joy and privilege of working through this passage this morning. Thank you for this glimpse of the awesome power, authority, and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray that like the centurion, we would respond in ever-increasing humility and confidence, placing our faith completely in the finished work of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. That's all for now. Dear church, we meet again tonight at 7 p.m. on Zoom for a prayer meeting to lift up one another's burdens to Christ together. I would encourage you to be there for that as we go before the throne of grace together. There are instructions in the email you received yesterday with login directions for that. If you don't have that, again, you can email me or send a Facebook message. We'd love for you to join us. Let's close with the doxology for now. Sing with me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy.